Uh, well, this morning is going to be a little bit of a different kind of sermon. I want to speak as a dad. And if you went to Bible college, um, maybe you can just turn off that thing they give you in Bible college where you critique everything. Um, maybe you can just turn that off today. Uh, and we can just do a little bit of a different kind of deal this morning. Um, but I want to just speak as a father. And the first thing I want to talk about is just what they'll teach you in... Um, when you, when you get into the science of learning styles and learning behavior, uh, you get into kind of a whole discussion on how rewards factor into human behavior. And it's actually fascinating stuff. Uh, and there are a couple different kinds of, revo- uh, of reward systems. One of them is, is just a straightforward reward, and this is kind of what we're all familiar with. You do this behavior, you get this thing. And so if you take lab rats um, and you study them and they hit the lever and they get the pellet or, or whatever the reward is, um, you know, it's a pretty straightforward thing. They learn it very fast. They'll hit the lever. Sooner or later, they'll get bored with it. And this idea of a straight reward system, you do this behavior, you get this reward, is incredibly powerful, incredibly effective, but it's not the most powerful reward system. So when you continue to study, you find that there's a different reward system called a variable rewards system. A variable reward system is you hit the lever, and every now and then you get a pellet. But you never know when you're going to get the pellet. Does that make sense? So the lab rat, in this scenario, will hit the lever. But unlike the first uh, instance, where they hit it just so long, and then they kind of get bored with the whole thing, they also know they've got it figured out, so they can always come back later, and they kind of move away. The variable reward system is so powerful that the rat will stay there, continually hitting the lever because there's this promise of sooner or later, I don't know when, there's going to be this kind of treat, this reward. And it it holds you captive because it's so powerful of a reward system, right? So here's a picture of the human version. (laughs) You guys are laughing, but that is a variable reward system. The slot machine is programmed to pay out, not on a predictable pattern, but on a variable, uh, kind of a variable pattern, so that you never know when it's going to pay out, and you're always thinking, this next quarter will do it. I've been here a long time, and it hasn't paid out, so sooner or later it's coming. And, uh, and so you sit there, and it's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly powerful. Okay? Um, this is also why if... Your kids whine, and you give in now and then, you're guaranteeing that they will always whine. Seriously. If, if kids learn that whining will sometimes get me what I want, I never know when they're going to crack. I will always whine, and I'll continue to whine until whatever uh, pushes back hard enough that, that at least this time it didn't work. Um, but they'll all, and I, I know this from um, introspection. Because <laughs> I was a very verbal kid, right? Um, which is a, a fun way of, of not saying manipulative. Um, I was very verbal. Uh, but so if you give in to whining, you're, you're guaranteeing whining. So I don't give in to whining. I... I kind of have this inverse reaction to it. The more there's whining, the more I dig in. 
And, and it doesn't matter how good the argument is or, or how wonderful the thing is or how much I want to give it to him. If it's coming um, through a request of whining, I will not yield. Okay? Now, lest you think I'm um, just a mean dad, uh, oftentimes, a half hour later, I'll come back and, and give whatever it was that was being asked for or, or give permission to whatever it was um, my kids wanted permission for. But do you see the difference? The difference is when I come back later, it's disconnected from the whining behavior, and now I can say, hey, that thing you wanted to do, I'm willing to go ahead and grant that to you, and here's why. I just love you, and I'm a pushover, or uh, hey, you earned it, or hey, whatever. But now I can come back and say yes, and the next time they want something, they don't have the, the connection of the reward connected to the whining. Does that make sense? But if I, if I were to yield right there in the moment and just go, man, I, I would feel so good as a dad if I gave in. I mean, it would just really make me feel good. And sometimes we can get caught up in that as parents that somehow the better I feel as a parent, I'm somehow being a good parent. And that doesn't always correlate, right? If I yield all the time in the middle of whining, I'm really ensuring that my kids are going to always whine. And there's something about that that then affects our relationship with God as well. Because when we train our kids, we're really helping them develop the grooves or the character that's going to dictate their behavior and their mindsets later on in life when they become adults. And if we give in to whining and create a variable reward system with our kids, what we're ensuring is that when they get older, they're going to approach God that way. And instead of presenting the request like um, Paul would do, once or twice, listen for an answer and then say, okay, if, if that's not the right thing, then I'll continue to move on and be faithful and obedient um, and, and I'll trust you, God, that you know well. But somehow if we are patterned this other way, we come to God in, in prayer, I think, later in life in an incredibly childish way and we'll whine. And we'll whine and we'll keep whining. And if God doesn't yield, we'll begin to develop this you're a bad parent idea. Because, you know, that's what we train kids on the back end of whining is the pout. Right? The pout comes on the back end of the whining. And so we end up creating a situation where we're expecting of God something that he never promised would be true. Now, God promises that he's always going to hear our cries when we're truly in need. All throughout Scripture, God hears the cry of the oppressed. God hears you when, when you're in the pit, Psalm 40. God's ears are tuned to that cry. Okay? But whining isn't about needs. Whining is about wants. And when we come to God with wants, saying that something is incomplete, and we continue to press into that, we're not willing to accept whatever answer God gives. We're really setting up a dynamic where we're not going to have a mature relationship with God where we can go further because we're going to be stuck on the things that we're demanding. I want to kind of transition this and get a little bit deeper. Proverbs 22.6, this, this is kind of the backbone of what I'm, I'm trying to get at today. But Proverbs 22.6 says this, Train up a child in the way that they should go, and even when they are old, they will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not depart from it. Now, this is not a promise, this is a proverb. What's the difference between a promise and a proverb? 
Okay? A promise is absolute. It holds, it holds in every situation. Um, it's, it's a promise. You can take it literally. A proverb is a wise saying that says, all things being equal, the way the world is created, the way the world is designed, it, if you do this, the results are going to tend to be kind of this way. And so when we take this verse as a promise, we can get very um, frustrated with God if we see our children walking away from the Lord or getting into behaviors that we we're not happy with. And we can get really angry with God and say, God, I, I did my job. I trained them in the way they should go. And you promised that they wouldn't depart from it. And that's just not the case. Um, God gave specific instructions to Adam and Eve, and, and they departed, right? I mean, that, that happens. This is a all things being equal. Um, it's better to train and to create the, the right grooves in kids, the right character in kids, because that's going to pattern or speak into or govern the behavior later in life. It's not a promise. It's a proverb. But it's incredibly important because in adolescent years, in, our, in the childhood years, it's when we're really creating the character that's going to speak into people um, and how they are able to function in life later. Uh, it's a really hard thing for people that come to the Lord later in life, but were never, no character was ever instilled in them. Whether it's a work ethic or even respect, it's really hard later in life, even though now you're, you're having this relationship with God and you're starting off, to go back and in some ways reform the inner structures of who you are if you don't have that character there. It's one of the, one of the greatest things that we can do as parents uh, in terms of making disciples is discipling our own kids. Um, the greatest shot you'll have at making disciples in this world are going to be the kids that you have in your house if you have kids. Um, or the close circle or your close community or, or extended family. But the people that you have the greatest time and energy and proximity with, it's your greatest opportunity to make disciples. And so what we get to do over the childhood years is create those patterns that hopefully they'll be able to benefit from later in life. And so I was on a trip uh, a week ago, and I called home. And, um, and calling home on a trip is funny. I don't know if, you've, if you travel, um, but there's a, when you're married, you have an inverted relationship with calling home, right? You... You typically call home when you're uh, at a place where you can talk, where you have the energy to talk, and where you're happy, okay? And you usually get a spouse on the other end that's surprised by the call, um, tired, and um, sees whatever happiness you're having as being directly proportionate <laughs> to, the, to the unhappiness that they're having, right? <laughs> So um, a couple of my friends and I who, uh, who travel, we've, we've learned that when you call home, even if it's, um, even if, I mean, you could be sitting poolside in some exotic resort. I haven't sat poolside in an exotic resort, but um, for instance, right? You could be sitting somewhere unbelievably amazing, but you need to sound really depressed <laughs> when you call home. You know, uh, how's it going? Ah, I'm not sleeping too good. Um, the food's horrible. Uh, I, I, this is miserable. Why did I ever leave home, right? And then you have this amazing conversation with your spouse 
Um, you guys connect. There, you, you feel the love. You're in it together. And you hang up the phone and everything's well. If you start in with, let me tell you about my day, and you start listing off all the great things, the next thing you get is, is, um, is a fight. And then you hang up the phone, and you're like, wow, I was having such a good day. Like, what happened? You know? And so you have to learn that trick. Anyways, um, so I called home on this last trip and, and uh, was talking to Tamara, and she tells me um, about Esther. Esther's our number two daughter. And that day, Esther had been with one of her friends, and, and, and somehow in the conversation with her friends, the friend was asking if she had her own iPad. You know, do you have your own iPad? Uh, well, no, my, you know, my family has an iPad or, or whatever. And, well, how come you don't have an iPad? And so in that conversation, all of a sudden, Esther developed that, uh, that, that peer pressure insecurity that we've all felt that somehow I'm missing out on life, somehow I don't fit in, somehow I'm not cool enough, I really need an iPad, my own iPad, um, in order to do that. So she comes home and she's depressed. So she, uh, she was happy. Um, then after this conversation, she's depressed, talks to Tamara. Tamara's like, well, that's really up to you what you want to do. I mean, if, if you want to earn the money to buy your own iPad, and I'm sure Esther's thinking it's $30 or something, you know. If you want to earn the money to get your own iPad, you're more than welcome to do that. It might take you a long time, but, but you're more than wel- uh, welcome to, to earn it, but you've got to pay for it yourself. So Esther is uh, naturally positive, and so she just jumps at the chance and says, great. And so I guess that day, um, things were getting done and things were getting cleaned that hadn't been cleaned in five years, <laughs> right? Behind couches, you know, the stuff that ends up on walls behind couches, you know, and I mean, just... Just the stuff that never is getting clean. She's helping Tamara and cooking and cleaning. It's unbelievable. So on the phone, Tamara's like, this is, I've never seen her like this. And, I'm, and all I can hear is like, she's, she's doing this for the wrong motives. And so I'm like, I want to talk to Esther. Tamara's like, no. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you, you can talk to Esther, but you can do it some other time. Because right now, like... She's, she's running around the house doing everything I want her to do. I'm like, okay. Um, I'll talk to Esther some other time. So I sat down with Esther three nights ago. I said, hey, Esther, about that iPad. She's like, yes, Daddy. I'm like, hey, explain to me that conversation. So you had a conversation. You, you talked to a friend, and that friend made you feel like to have enough or to be sufficient, you need an iPad. She's like, yeah. Like, before that conversation, was there a lack in your life? Like, were you, were you depressed? Were you thinking about iPads? No, I wasn't. I'm like, so what changed? And she's like, well, I don't, I don't know, Dad. And I said, well, let's go through your life. And so we kind of went through her life. And, you know, here are your sisters, and here's your family, and here's your mom, and here's the things you're learning, and here's um, the music lessons that you love, and here's all these kinds of things in your life. Is there, is there an abundance there, or is there a lack there? She's like, there's an abundance. And, and I said, do you, do you have a good life? Are you well taken care of? Are you provided for? And she said, she said yeah, I, I guess I really am. And I said, does an iPad change that? And she says, no, it really doesn't. And so I said, um, hey, Esther, mom's really proud of you. Like, you were working really hard, making money. I'm perfectly okay 
if you work towards getting the money to buy an iPad, I'm perfectly okay with that if you want to do that. But it has to come out of an understanding of abundance, not from a scarcity mindset. In other words, it has to come out or emerge from a grounded identity, an understanding of who you are, that you are loved and that you're well taken care of and that things are sufficient. It has to come out of that place rather than a scarcity mentality that says, um, I always need more to, to somehow get to where I need to be in life to then be set which will never be enough. I said, do you understand that? And, and Esther says, yeah, I understand that. You know, and, and she's like, thanks, Dad, um, for talking to me. You're the best dad in the world. Um, and as an aside, so I've, everyone I've ever met, um, it's, you know, when you grow up, you begin to realize that no family's perfect, no parents are perfect, right? And then you go through that stage where you're like, oh, I see all the imperfections. You know what I'm talking about, right? So I'm smart enough to realize my kids are going to do that to me. And so I'm trying to, like, fast forward the process. So I've started lately telling all um, the girls, the older ones especially, hey, your dad's not perfect. You know that? Um, your parents aren't perfect. And, and someday you're going you're gonna to realize how we weren't perfect. And, and I just want you to know we're not perfect, and I'm sorry. Just figure, just get it over with, right? <laughs> and, and, uh, and my two oldest kids, they look at me and they're like, Dad, you are perfect, though. Like, <laughs> you're the best dad in the world. And, and I, I didn't have a comeback for that. I was just like, I don't know. We'll come back to this conversation in like a year or two, you know. Um, teenage years, uh, they're not going to let me off so easy, right? So Esther has this whole thing. And, um, and the idea here is that in Scripture we see an economics uh, of abundance, not an economics of scarcity. We see in God's economy, that in, in the kingdom economy, it's, it's always from a position of abundance, not from a position of scarcity. It's always, instead of looking at the bar above you that you need to get to that, that's tyrannizing you, it's always looking to what's been provided below that's sufficient for your needs. So Jesus, when he makes loaves of bread, um, he makes extras, and um, when he makes wine, he makes a lot of extra. Um, and when he talks about not worrying and not being kind of tyrannized by your concerns of how you're going to keep up in life, he says, listen, um, the birds, look at the way God takes care of them and the flowers in the field. Don't you realize that the way God created the world and the way he's designed the system there's a lot more in it that is sufficient for your needs than what you realize. I mean, a simple example would be uh, Americans, myself included, we're always walking around looking for the lottery we're going to win that's going that's gonna, to that's gonna come in and perfectly fill the, the lack, the deficiency. Take care of our debt and then get us all the things that we think we need on our list. And we're always waiting for that windfall when at almost any time we could just step back and say, you know, we could adjust our spending to create margin that over a couple of years would probably accomplish the same thing, right? And I'm talking about, I'm not pointing a finger like I, I live this way, right? But, but the idea is we have to recognize that we're patterned this way to come at things from a scarcity mindset. 
And our identity follows in that pattern. It's like when I arrive here, then I will be complete and I can rest. And in God's economy, it's like, no, I've provided an abundance of things. When you recognize the ways in which I take care of you or the sufficiency of that, and that, there's a, that your identity, that you're well taken care of, that you're loved, that you're provided for there, then when you operate out of that, it's going to look a whole lot different. And so I think as parents, we have to really take serious this idea um, of beginning to pattern a system of abundance and a mindset of abundance in our kids, and we don't do this well. In fact, as parents, we typically get this wrong. And here's the prime example. Um, you look at the food, the food on your kid's plate, and there's still broccoli, and you say there's kids in Africa who are starving, right? So you need to, you need to finish your yogurt, you need to finish your, your broccoli, okay? Now, I, I never got that one. I don't, know that, I don't know that I've ever met anyone that really got that one because you're looking at your broccoli and you're like, whether I eat this or not, no kid in Africa is going to get this broccoli. No matter how sad that is, like, I don't understand the connection to this broccoli and that kid in Africa, right? And, and what's more, um, the logic seems to be a little bit weird because the kids in Africa, they don't have ice cream either. And so how come I'm looking at broccoli, right? Or they don't have, you know, PlayStations, so mom, why don't you give me more PlayStations? Like, you know, the logic seems like it's messed up. But what we do with that analogy is we're, we're punishing kids with abundance rather than helping them appreciate abundance. So the language is you should appreciate it and eat it because kids in Africa don't have it. But the way we experience that is punishment. Like what? I have a lot. They don't. So I have to eat broccoli? At that like, I feel, I feel punished here. The difference would be at, at the prayer time and a meal to look at the kids, to smile at the kids you love, and just to say, let's give thanks for what God has provided because we have an abundance. And it, it could be that we would be in a position where we'd be crying out to God because we didn't have. But living in America or our family or, or whatever it is, because of, because of whatever you know, accidents of geography happened, we're in a position where we have an abundance, and we need to remember that. We need to give thanks. We need to look at this and, and realize it could be different, but it's this way. And we need to begin to appreciate that, kids. And then when we come to iPads, it's like, hey, listen, remember how we were appreciating all that we had? Do we really need more? And so... We, we can't be punishing kids for the same mindset that we're trying to help them appreciate. Does that make sense? Like, eat your broccoli. Why? Because there's a lot of it on your plate. No, let's give thanks for the bounty that's here and realize that with the leftovers, we need to find ways to share, not to punish ourselves, but to actually help those who are less fortunate. So instead of eating more broccoli, like, how would we take the leftovers in our house and actually get them into the community. Like the coat drives that we're doing or, or sleeping bag drives or actually sponsoring a kid or doing something that would allow you to disciple kids into saying, 
in our abundance, how do we show our appreciation to God? By sharing. And broccoli just doesn't get us there. Okay? Um, here's what Paul says in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness in our relationship with Christ Jesus. And if we, if we pattern ourselves to think we haven't, that we're still scarce on something, we're never really going to be able to move forward and grow into that life that Christ designed for us or would call us into. Um, so back to parents. Back to parents. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go at the soccer thing, but I want to I preface it this way because it's not about the soccer thing. Like I've been in churches before where it's like um, the pastor preaches against Sunday morning sports, right? You know what I'm talking about? And it always felt a lot like me, like his, he was bothered because his ego was involved and that families were kind of choosing Little League over like the pastor's ego. Does that make sense? Have you ever felt that? I've felt that. Um, I'm coming at it not, not at all because of the soccer or even saying it's a bad thing. Here's the deal, though. If you put your kids in sports and you do it in such a way that it conflicts with other values that you're trying to build in your kids, you may inadvertently be teaching them a value system that you, um, that you might not have thought all the way through. Here's what I mean by that. If you put your kid in sports, our daughters are in ballet. Ballet is not on Sunday, right? It's easy. Uh, but we have our kids in things, act, extracurricular activities. But whether it's soccer, baseball, football, ballet, whatever it is, why do you put your kids in that? Okay? I doubt it's because train your kids up um, in the way they should go and they would not depart from it. I doubt it's because you think at age 35 that y your child is going to be in the major leagues of baseball. I don't want my daughter hanging out with, with the guys in the men tights in ballet. I'm not, I'm not seeing this as a long-term thing, okay? Um, I, I doubt most little league things are because at age 35 or 40, you think it's going to make a great career. Does that make sense? So, it, so why are we doing it? We're doing it because uh, coordination. Like I, I really want my kids to, to have a little bit of it, right? Um, for team, for them to be in a group where they learn how to function in a team environment, ballet is the same that way. I mean, you're functioning together in unison and harmony. It's not just a solo thing. Um, to get them out of the house, I don't know. Um, and I think ultimately, if we're honest with ourselves, it's, it's for confidence. We really, as parents, we really are, are so afraid of our kid not fitting in. So afraid of it. And so afraid of our kid being teased or so afraid of our kid being bullied or so afraid of, of, of how they're going to feel about themselves if they're not like the other kids. And so we want them in that because we see the confidence that results when they feel like they're doing a good job and they're growing in it. Does that make sense? So let me put it this way, and, and this is a really important distinction. We're really doing the sports thing 
as a form of discipleship, aren't we? Aren't we? We're, we're, we're really making that decision for our kids and helping them do it or paying for it because we see benefits to, to it that they can reap in their character or in their sense of, of self-worth or whatever it might be. So our purpose for it is discipleship, right? But what happens when the sport begins to take the whole family and drive the agenda so that things like church or or our identity in God, or this understanding that even without soccer or baseball, I still have been given everything for, for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. I'm sufficient before football or baseball. I don't need football or baseball to become complete. If we're teaching our kids an abundance mentality and where we stand in the kingdom with God, what we're really saying is this is an aid. It's, a, it's something that can be used in discipleship. But if all of a sudden we're not having the, 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 the whole conversation with them and we make soccer the be-all, end-all and we're not going to church because it's on Sunday morning and we're not hanging out with the youth group kids and everything is going this way, we've now taken what could have been discipleship, a means, and we've made it the end. Does that make sense? And this isn't about Sunday morning and, and being here at Antioch. Like, we, if soccer's on a, a Sunday morning, then find a church that has a Saturday night service. There's a lot of them in town. Westside has got a Saturday night service. Go there. Teach your kids what it means to be committed to church, the local church, church community. Don't fudge on that for sports, right? Um, we don't have a Saturday night service uh, because I feel like if I had to do church two days a week, I mean, just think if you had to do church two days a week, you'd start hating it. Um, and I just think it's a bad, I mean, seriously, I think it's a bad trade-off for me to start hating church so that a few more people can come. Um, and now God's you know, probably going to tell me we need to do a Saturday night service, but I don't think so. Um, but I'm serious. If, 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 that, if your kid is athletic enough or you think they're going to get a scholarship because they're, they're that good or whatever, but don't take higher values and sacrifice them for lower values. That's not discipleship. And so here's the question that I think I want to say will happen if you raise your kids that way. If you train your kids up that way, then when they're 26, I'm going to look at them, I'm going to say something like, why aren't you in church? Or God might look at them and say, why aren't you in church? And I think in their heart, they're going to say, God, first things first here, why are you not helping me make more money? God, um, seriously now, uh, I don't feel like I fit in. And so why don't you bring success my way so that I could feel a heck of a lot better um, about my standing in society? And as I feel good about myself, then, then I'll add, add church. But this is a priority, God, and church is secondary to that. Um, Johnny, why... Why are you not serving? 
Why are you not giving out of the excess? Why are you not um, recognizing the abundance that I have in your life and that you have an opportunity to get out of yourself, get outside of yourself, and to, to tangibly show love to other people? I want that for you because you're never going to be more yourself than when you're, you're serving others because love has to be demonstrated. Love is about sacrifice. And if you don't love, what kind of a person are you and how are you going to really understand my love and I, why are you not serving? Um, well, God, um, I played soccer my whole life. I'm really into it. And, you know, the soccer games uh, over in Europe, if I watch them real time, they're on Sunday morning, you know. But that's my identity, you know. And so uh, I got to start there. Or, you know what, God, um, I can't serve because I'm only going to give church an hour here because my life is so full of extracurricular activities. I, you know, I'm a really busy guy. I'm really, really, really busy but I'm going to give it one hour. But I can't volunteer on top of that one hour. I mean, that would be more time than what I have. Well, why are you doing all those activities? Why are you so busy? Well, because it makes me who I am. It fills my life. I get to look at all of the things I'm doing and, and my identity and my sense of myself and my confidence. Just look at, at how great I am. And I'm so proud of that. And and God's like, ah, I just, I, we've got inverted priorities here. And so parents, as we're trying to make decisions for our kids about what we buy them or let them buy for themselves or where we take them and what, what we let them uh, get involved in, we're helping to shape them whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not. And the question is, are we shaping them from a perspective of discipleship where their priorities are layered appropriately and that we don't somehow invert some of those priorities so that later in life they're battling against that kind of worldview that we've given them? Does that make sense? All right. Um, I think this is important for church too, by the way. Um, as a church, we've been given everything that we need, the spiritual gifts that we need, all the resources that we need. God's will for Antioch can be met by what's in Antioch. It's an abundance mentality. As pastors or as church planters, we often look outside our church or compare ourselves to other churches and, uh, and we begin to feel like we lack. If only this church had millions and millions and millions of dollars. If only we had a building. Uh, if only we had you know, whatever it might be, right? And, and you, you live that way and begin to always feel like somehow what's there is not sufficient when God's church, wherever it is, small town or big town, whether it's in Africa or South America um, or the South, I don't know, that's like a country to me, I don't know. Um, whatever church you find yourself in, it has all it needs to be the right kind of spiritual community to meet God's will in that place and in that time. Does that make sense? So look around. Everything God would do through us, we have all we need. The artistic gifts, the business know-how, the people that know how to write grants if, if we needed that, the people that can volunteer with kids, those who understand how to do special needs ministries, 
Um, those who have wisdom and insight, those who can teach, those who can lead small groups, those that have hospitality gifts, know how to bring people into your home and make them feel connected and loved. But whatever we need to do is met here. And I think the best thing God ever did through um, Antioch was to blow my mind with things like um, conferences that we did or the intern ministry or other things. Because all of that at the end of the day has taught me that God can do anything through us. I mean, us, Antioch. I believe in the local church, first and foremost. I believe in this expression of the local church. I believe this local church, if we lean hard into God and believe that God can do amazing things through us, that he would. And so I get excited about not coming and saying, what do we lack, what do we lack, but thinking about it from the sense of all that we're really going to need is going to be found here in the church. Uh, you guys remember MacGyver? Or am I dating myself? <laughs> MacGyver was the, the, the dude that episode up, uh, after episode, you guys remember that? Um, if, if, if it's before your time, it was a guy like, what would be an example? It was like 24? Jack Bauer? Um, I don't know what other examples would be. Um, Jason Bourne, but not as cool. I don't know. But MacGyver was a guy that could do anything and kind of make anything. And the, and the shtick of the show was always that he would come to an impasse and then he would make something out of nothing, like a couple little elements, uh, a thread, a piece of metal, a cotton ball, and he'd make a tank, right? <laughs> um, and... Uh, one episode, he, uh, he was caught in an avalanche. I don't know if you guys remember this. I grew up skiing. The funny thing is I don't ski now that I'm in Bend, but I grew up on skis. That's what I was known for in my high school. Like I was the kid that was the best skier. Um, it was my identity. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I, I grew up skiing, and so this one episode, MacGyver's trapped in an avalanche. So he's in this air pocket, and he's trapped in this avalanche. But somehow he has enough room to get a ski pole um, out in front of him, and he takes the handle off and he creates a little parachute thing and stuffs it in there and then pokes the ski pole through the snow and blows the parachute out and then they see where he's at. <laughs> and the whole time I'm like, a, a ski pole isn't, like, it, it doesn't have a hole on the top. You know what I mean? But that, that doesn't matter. It's like when A-Team, like, the helicopter slams into the cliff, it slides down the cliff, it explodes three times, and then the guys walk out um, coughing. Remember that? <laughs> Like, I grew up in the age of it didn't matter. Like, just, just script writers would just change it. Um, but, uh, but I think church, we need to approach it with kind of a MacGyver mindset. Um, whatever we need, we can do. And I don't respond to criticism. Criticism is churchgoers' uh, version of whining. Right? And so if you listen to it, the next thing you know, you're going to spend um, your whole week, every week, running around trying to please people. And I definitely don't. By the way, uh, it's been a long time since I've really gotten any criticism. Um, so I don't want you to, to be misled here. It's been a long time since I've had any criticism. Like, I love this church because it's low drama, and it feels incredibly healthy to me. Like, I love that, Right? But we started Antioch seven years ago, and we had a policy that, that if we got mail or, or cards that had criticisms and it didn't have a name on it, 
we don't show it to anyone. It just goes straight in the trash, okay? Because a criticism without a name is a bullet, not a conversation. Does that make sense? Okay. And I, w- I want to come at it and say, how do we have this culture that says um, we're not disengaged, looking at it, trying to shape it um, to suit kind of what it is we would think we would want from an experiential level? Um, how do we engage into it and recognize that we often are the fix or the solution to most of the problems that we see? The things that bug you the most are probably the things or, or the areas where you need to get on uh, some kind of a team or begin serving or, or involving yourself. But what's even more than that is when you move past criticism and you begin to get involved in a certain area, you begin to realize it's more complex than what I thought it was. You know, we could probably do that. Or our church could probably do that if we upped the budget by a million dollars. We don't but I don't know that I want to, you know what I mean? Or, you know what, wow, I didn't realize that the person responsible for that, this was what was going on in their life. And if I were to just be critical and miss the context of what's happening, how disingenuine would that be? Instead, I don't care about this other thing. I want to serve this person. Um, Or you begin to realize that in serving and building relationships and coming together as community that we actually fulfill a lot of our deeper needs and we kind of look at the things that we used to care about and we're like, you know, those really aren't church. That, that stuff is really just kind of surface when you, when you get down to it. It's style or whatever it might be. But so there's something about recognizing there's an abundance and living that forward rather than always perceiving a lack, a problem, a deficiency, something that's not quite the way I would want it or spun the way I would have it. And and we've got to fix that. And until we fix that, I'm not going to rest. And then what we basically say is something, God, that you think is beautiful, something, God, that your Holy Spirit is gifting and working in and laboring that you think has this wonderful identity and is sufficient, we're standing in judgment on that saying, no, it's not sufficient. If only it was a little brighter, if only it was a little bit more like them, if only it met my needs a little bit more, then, God, it would be sufficient, as if it's a scarcity kind of uh, economy. And I, I don't want to spend the last half of my life that way. I feel like culture has shaped me to live that way. Like I see it in myself. I don't know about you. But I, have, I just got back from Thailand where religion affects culture. Culture drives the whole system of sexual exploitation. And you look at the whole thing and you're like, wow. It, it all is like wrapped together. It's not just black and white or simple. It, it's, all these things go together. You come back to America and our version of kind of consumer religion and our, our culture of consumerism and individualism our, our thing drives our thing. And we're all a part of it. Does that make sense? Like it's not black and white. It's not just those people over there. We can, we can, think about affirming somebody right now. Like getting together with your friends and like talking about a friend that's not there and affirming that person. Like what would that look like to affirm that person? And I think that what, all of us would realize is it would be short. 
we'd say some nice things, and then it kind of it, it kind of burns itself up, and it's like, okay, um, Johnny's cool, and we we shared some stories, and we affirmed him. It doesn't go very far. Now I want you to think back this week or last week or the last time you and your friends got together and you were being critical of something. You can spin that thing all day and all night. Isn't that interesting? And so what happens when we're together and we're being critical? Here's what happens. Americans who, because of our individualism and our commitment to self, typically end up feeling very alone and isolated and cut off from community. When we get together with people, we're actually connecting, and we trip onto criticism, and we can really dive into that, we, we experience a sense of togetherness and unity and camaraderie in our criticism circle that we don't really get to experience anywhere else in life, and we begin to need it, and we begin to feed on it. And it begins to be such a part of our life that we have to kind of continue to do it. Where else are we going to find that kind of um, relationship and togetherness that we all need? Like where has God called us as we're raising up our kids and training them in the way that they should go? Where has God designed for us to actually find healthy community in that kind of way? Well, if we're sitting in a circle and we're trying to affirm people, that burns up quick. If we're serving alongside people with common goals on a team, it stays positive all day long. And there's a a level of togetherness and unity and oneness that comes from that. And so somehow, like, we got to be able to look at our own culture and say, we have replaced what was meant to be, as we get outside of ourselves, with kind of a pseudo way of finding community that's driven by criticism or kind of the critical mindset of America. I mean, we are... Uh, cynics and critics. And so um, we have to break that cycle. I don't know, a couple last thoughts uh, as I'm putting myself through therapy. Um, Every marriage that I know that is in trouble right now is because one or both of the people in that marriage are looking outside the marriage for sufficiency. If you are in your covenantal relationship with your spouse and you can't see that as being sufficient, that you made a covenant with God and that this was good, it's not good for man to be alone, but this now is the solution to that. And I can water the grass so that it's green, I can nurture it, but in this covenantal relationship, in these boundaries, is where I'm going to find sufficiency. When that goes wrong, the marriages that end up in trouble someone begins to look outside the marriage oftentimes to find sufficiency. If I only had that, what that other person has, or if I only was with him or with her, then it would be complete. And so this whole idea of a sufficiency mindset, that we've been given everything we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus, and we can bring that into our marriages as well as our families, needs to drive everything. You know you're in trouble when someone is looking outside the marriage for sufficiency. And marriages are an interesting thing, and it comes back to this reward system. We all know the joke um, about the wife nagging the guy because he's trying to find where they're going, and he's lost, and he won't admit it. You know what I'm talking about? Um, So the guy's lost, 
And this is like one of the great jokes of, of mankind and womankind and life is, is the guy lost thing. But here's what's really going on beneath that. For, first off, just as we're not lost, we, we just need more time, okay? <laughs> and the reason we need more time is this. If we can't find a place if we can't just drive to an address, something as simple as on a map, as guys, it speaks to our confidence in our sufficiency to be able to provide for our families. It's deep. That's why we have a button there. It's like in our minds, we're like, if I admit that I'm lost, if I allow help and, and kind of cut this process off before I have enough time to figure it out, it's as if I'm saying something about my competency to do something as simple as find a place on a map. And so it's a, it's a huge part of guys' egos. But because it's that big, the wife is poking the button, then she realizes that the guy won't admit it, and then it becomes a game, right? And so then the wife's like, you're lost, admit it, you're lost, you admit it. And so it's this fight, and to her it's kind of a joke because she's, she's pushing a button, but to the guy he's getting really angry because he's like, you don't understand. Leave me alone because I'll figure it out. Like, I just need a compass, um, and MacGyver, and, and I'll get there, but just stop with the nagging already. You know, like, I, because this is really important. It's really important I find that McDonald's um, that our friends told us about by their house. Like, but it's a deep thing, and th this is where the reward system comes back, and it's um, guys and girls are different yet equal, and, and it goes different ways in a marriage, but some of, the, some of the most trying marriages that I see, there's, a, there's something at work that, um, where the guy is not doing all that he needs to do and, there's, and the wife has gotten into a pattern of, of what we would call nagging. And the guy, because guys are, are really um, children, we're boys. We feel like if we give in to that, we're only going to encourage that behavior. So it's almost like the variable reward system in reverse. Guys, we, we know this, right? It's like if it's coming and it's nagging, it's like, yeah, but if I say yes now, it's like I'm admitting all of that to come into my life. And so we, we react against it and we keep going. And as guys, we can be so immature that way because it's like I'm going to hang on to my pride at the expense of my responsibility or at the expense of the love of my wife. And that's where we get really dumb. So guys need to learn how to um, not let the pride get in the way but reach back down to what that character is that says, um, it's not about me looking a certain way. It's about getting it right and creating the right relationship. Wives, here's how you can do it better. Because, because husbands are men, deep down inside, we're little boys, just treat us like little boys. Meaning, um, just get really excited about the home runs we hit. You know? Like, wow, that was really good. You know? Like, hey, that was, that was wonderful. Or, um, or the, the little things we do that are right. And I'm not trying to be derogatory. I'm just saying the little things we do that are right. It's like you find those and... and Act like we're a knight on shining armor 
You know what I mean? Like, like it's the greatest thing ever. And, and then you'll see guys like peacocks will start preening. And then all of a sudden, it's like it was our idea to be responsible. And then all of a sudden, we're doing everything that you always wanted us to do in the first place, right? And so you can help out our problems with our ego by just being smarter than we are um, that way. Uh, and rewarding the little bits like you would maybe um, a kid that way. Uh, lastly, here is this. Every covenant has parameters. Every covenant does. My job has parameters. Um, my relationship with you has parameters. My relationship with my wife has parameters. My relationship with my kids has parameters. I, if, if I physically hurt one of my kids, I'm going outside the parameters of the covenant that I have with them as their father. We don't realize this, but our relationship with God has parameters. We have to start with those parameters, what our priorities should be, what discipleship looks like, what our ethics, what um, appropriate behavior, what identity looks like, what sufficiency, what understanding how God would speak into us. What, what that looks like has to be our starting point and then move out. We can't start the other way around and say, I'm going to start with life and go find what's going to make my belly feel sufficient as if my stomach is my God. I'm not going to go out into life, find my sufficiency the way I want to feel it, and then come to religion or to God and say, now I'll, you know, now I'll do whatever those check boxes you, were, uh, you wanted were. Like, we can't invert the priorities that way. And I love what G.K. Chesterton said about fairy, fairy stories and fairy tales because he says that, as kids, when we hear the fairy stories, it teaches us that the universe does work on these kinds of parameters and covenantal boundaries. That the pumpkin does turn back, or the coach turns back to a pumpkin at midnight, right? That that happens, that it's a, a law of the universe, and there's nothing you can do to change it, and so you don't argue with it, right? You, you come to it and you go, okay, so given that reality, well, then what does that mean? Like, what, what, what should the princess do, or what should the person do, or, or what does that look like? And we have to begin to come back to understanding that as we're training kids up and as we're looking at our own lives, that we're on these rails of priorities with an abundance of what we've got in Christ Jesus from God, starting there, letting that overflow in thanks, and then coming at the rest of life and saying, what does this mean for that? Rather than coming at life and saying, how would I want to make it look? What do I want to be true? And then, oh, how do I map that on to the Christian narrative and obliterate the boundaries uh, or, or the covenantal kind of edges in the process? So I, um, I'm chewing on this phrase, and it's been running me. Train up a child in the way that they should go. And even when they get old, they will not depart from it. That the deep, deep, deep stuff that patterns our thinking and begins to dictate and drive our behavior is really important because what we do with our kids is really what's going to come about as they are adults or as Wordsworth said, uh, the child is the father of the man. The child precedes the adult. Um, and so what happens in childhood gets carried into adulthood and I think that's incredibly important as we look at our relationship with our Christian faith. So let's pray. Father, I pray that we wouldn't need iPads to make us feel like we're complete. I pray that we, in our love for kids or friends or whatever else, would not somehow invert the priorities 
that ought to govern what it is we do and the decisions that we make. I pray that we would be able to keep discipleship as the ends and other things as the means, and that we'd be able to do that consistently as we seek to grow and to mature those that we love. And we just pray that in your name.